Turn in your Bibles, if you will, again to Hebrews chapter 13, as we get close to the end of this book. Two more Sundays after this, I believe, and we'll finish Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, we'll look at verses 11 to 16 today. I'm sure we've all heard the expression, can't see the forest for the trees. That's true in all of life. We can focus on one favorite thing, one favorite tree, and we can lose sight of the big picture entirely, uh, miss the breadth and the beauty of the whole forest. And we Christians are not, uh, are not immune from that. Uh, sometimes that cliche describes very well uh, how we think of the Christian faith. We focus on our one little pet doctrine or our one little issue, and it becomes bigger than everything, and we miss the beauty and the breadth of, uh, of the gospel and what God's doing. Well, today our text is brief, but it gives us, I think, a glimpse of the whole of the Christian forest, the beauty of it all. Here we see the centrality of Christ's work on the cross, and we see again something of its relationship to the Old Testament law, and we see the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, and we see what kind of life that discipleship will produce. That's pretty much a, a, a view of the whole forest of the Christian life and the Christian faith. So let me read it, and then we'll walk our way through it a bit. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In this passage, I believe the Lord has two things to say to us, two points this morning. First is, Jesus makes us outsiders. Jesus makes us outsiders. You know, it's just about nothing we want less than to be outsiders. From childhood, at every stage of our life, we have labored to try to be in the in-group. And even as adults, though we may criticize our kids for that, the truth is we do many, many things. We buy things, we get into things to be accepted by our peers because we hate being excluded. We hate being a social outcast. For some, that is worse than death. But in this text, we learn that Jesus makes us outsiders as he calls us to join him bearing that stigma. This is a radical truth. Let me explain why I think this says it here. This whole book of Hebrews has been teaching us about Jesus and following him by showing us how the Old Testament pointed us to him, and the Old Testament illuminated the Christian life that we live today. <clears throat> so once again, in verse 11, we have a, a, a partial picture of a great Old Testament event, and that is the Day of Atonement. This once-a-year once sacrifice 
was a reminder that all the daily and the weekly and the monthly sacrifices never atoned for sin. And so once a year, Israel celebrated Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day, day of atonement. On that day, there was an intricate ritual that's described in Leviticus 16 that's carried out by the high priest. It went kind of like this. The high priest set aside his official robes and put on a simple white garment. And he sacrificed a a young bull and a ram as a sin offering for himself and the other priests. He filled his censer with live coals from the altar and and entered into the Holy of Holies, where he only went that one day, all year, and only he ever went there. The incense filled the room with smoke, making, uh, masking the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the Mercy Seat. The high priest in that smoke-filled room took some of the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the Mercy Seat to atone for his own sin and the sin of the other priest. And then he went back out and he made another sacrifice. He sacrificed a goat as a sin offering for the sins of the people. Some of the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies again, and again sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then the high priest went out and he took a second goat that had been chosen, and he laid his hands on the head of that goat and confessed the sins of the people. And then this goat, called the scapegoat, was taken off into the desert and released, symbolically carrying away the sins of the people. Then finally, as our text mentions... The carcasses of those burnt offerings, the bull and the goat, were taken outside the city walls and burned. This was different than all those other sacrifices that the priest and the people ate the meat after the animal was sacrificed. Not this sacrifice. It was taken outside the city and burned to ashes. Now back in Hebrews 9 and 10, the writer explained clearly that Christ came in fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. In a dozen different ways, the Day of Atonement points us to Christ. He's the true great high priest. Unlike the other high priest, he doesn't have to make atonement for his own sins because he has no sins. And he doesn't offer the blood of an innocent animal. He offers his own blood to do what all those other sacrifices could never do, once for all, pay for all of our sins. And his sacrifice didn't just purify us ceremonially, ritually, it actually cleanses our conscience. And when he entered the Holy of Holies, he didn't enter the, that symbol, that, 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 uh, a picture of the Holy of Holies that was the tabernacle of the temple. He entered the real place, the very presence of God in heaven. And when he went into the real Holy of Holies, he didn't just go in for a minute to offer a sacrifice and then leave. He stays there, and there he is today, not only uh, interceding for us, but opening the door that we can boldly come to the throne of grace. He's fulfilled this day of atonement in all the various aspects of that ritual. But now in Hebrews 13, there's one more way in which Jesus fulfills the day of atonement. One more way that Leviticus 16 points us to the Savior. As that sacrifice was burned up outside the city walls, so when Jesus made atonement for our sin... He, too, was sacrificed outside the city walls on Calvary, on a cross. Now, we may have never noticed that detail, but the Holy Spirit makes a point of it 
in verse 12, Jesus also sacrificed, suffered outside the city gate in order to make the people holy through his own blood. This little detail may seem insignificant, but the writer of Hebrews was saying something really important to these struggling believers who received this letter first, and to us. He says it in verse 13 to 14, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. In other words, Jesus says, if he was disgraced by the Jews as he died for them, these Jewish believers should be prepared to be disgraced too as they follow him. If Jesus was cast out of the holy city and hung on a cross, they ought not to, be, not to expect to be welcomed there themselves as they're joined to Jesus. In saving them, Jesus made them outsiders with him. Now let me just make clear, it's no small thing to say they're outsiders to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem doesn't matter. Jerusalem is the city of God. All the promises of God's presence with his people and his blessings on his people, his protection and, 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 and acceptable worship, all those things are tied to the holy city. Jerusalem, the city of God. So how could they, and even we, not be making pilgrimages to the Holy Land, so the, the, to the holy city, that chosen city which, to which are attached all God's promises? How could they ever abandon Jerusalem, no matter what the Jewish leaders did? Isn't Jerusalem the city of God, the capital city of God's chosen people? Not anymore. Not anymore. It's been replaced. The promises to Jerusalem have been fulfilled in Jesus and in the holy city in which he now reigns, that we talked about earlier in chapter 12, that heavenly Zion, that new Jerusalem where he is at the right hand of the Father. That ultimate holy city, that heavenly bride, which is now populated by those who trust in Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, that city is the eternal city that one day uh, will will descend upon the earth and uh, will populate a new heaven and a new earth. So where does that leave the earthly city of Jerusalem? That religious establishment that so was persecuting these believers, these Jewish believers, it's been rejected. It's been rejected. That's what we read in Galatians 4. The present city of Jerusalem is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Being a citizen of the earthly Jerusalem now means nothing. All that matters is that you are a citizen of the heavenly new Jerusalem, one of those redeemed and ruled by the risen Messiah, Jesus. In regard to the historical Jerusalem, Jesus had made them outsiders, as he was. Now, if those frightened, faltering Jewish believers could understand all that, it would make them very bold 
They would boldly go to Jesus outside the camp with their head held high. They would confess their loyalty to him, their connection to his people and their hope for him, for their salvation in him. They would not wince when they were disgraced by those who claimed to be God's chosen people. When, when they were shut out from what claimed to be God's holy city, when they were kicked out of the synagogues where supposedly God's people worshipped. It wouldn't matter, for they had a better hope. They were aligned with Jesus. They were citizens of the true Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem. They were co-heirs with Christ. And that's exactly what happened in the New Testament church, by the way. Jesus warned his apostles that the day would come when people thinking that they were serving God would kick them out of the synagogues and would persecute them. And sure enough, when Peter and John were flogged and told to never speak in the name of Jesus again, it was the Jewish council that did that. The church leaders, to put it in our terms. And when Stephen preached the gospel and was stoned to death, it wasn't the Roman soldiers, it was his fellow Jews, thinking they were doing God a favor. And, 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 and as the Apostle Paul went from town to town evangelizing, who hunted him down and followed him to place, from place to place to try to persecute him? His fellow Jews, who rejected Jesus. Jesus had made them all outcasts, like he was. And what about us? We're not in their situation, but surely this applies to us in some way. You see, we too love respectability and we hate being marginalized. So when the establishment church gets full of itself and begins to abandon the gospel and abandon the word of God, we, like these Jewish believers, are tempted to just stay where it's comfortable. We don't want to be considered wild-eyed, fundamentalist radicals. Everyone would rather be known as mainstream and middle-of-the-road and respectable, religious, balanced people. But at that point, we need to remember that Jesus was rejected by those respectable religious people. In fact, he was not only marginalized, he was criminalized and hung on a cross outside the city. So if we would follow him, we need to be prepared for the same treatment. And history records that's what has happened repeatedly. When Martin Luther came to understand the gospel of grace and salvation by faith, and he began to teach it and preach it, who stood against him? Who attacked him? It was the church, the respected religious establishment who declared him a heretic and sought to destroy him. Jesus had made him an outcast when he aligned himself with the gospel, with Christ. So its exhortation to us is, let us go outside the camp. Now, what does that mean? Well, it certainly means to love Jesus more than we love respectability. But I think there's something here also of the notion that we will find Jesus and we will find fellowship with him. We will find him at work, not primarily in the, in the rich and famous celebrity churches, but rather in the down-and-out, dirty world of poor, hurting sinners, those with whom he identified, those he came to save. I mention this because I find among Christians, including myself, 
a tendency toward Christian upward mobility. Perhaps we used to be down and outers when we cried out for Jesus to save us, but after a few years, we don't really want to have anything to do with those kind of people. We've risen above that. Well, yes and no. Hopefully we've risen above the sin that used to control us. But we never rise above being associated with Jesus in his rejection and being associated with those who are rejected for his sake. Jesus has made us outcasts with him. That's the first truth I think we see here. The second one is from the next verses, 15 and 16, and that verse is this. So live in gratitude. Live in gratitude. Did you ever hear someone who had just been through some terrible, terrible life event then turn around and say, you know, that's the best thing that ever happened to me? Maybe you said it yourself. For sometimes devastating events end up freeing us from the things that had bound us up for years. Well, that's the case here, too. When we hear that Jesus makes us outsiders, that sounds like the most distressing news. But in fact, it is truth that sets us free. We know this even on a secular level. The person who is always worried about being accepted by people lives in bondage. While the one who is oblivious to all those pressures enjoys living his life. (laughs) It is in these next verses, verse 15 and 16, that the Lord who sets us free from the shackles of religious expectations then calls us to live out our lives in grateful praise. Jesus didn't just make us outsiders to make us miserable. He set us free in order to live in gratitude to him. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that bringing sacrifices is at the heart of the worship in the Old Testament. They brought a sacrifice to atone for their sin. They brought a sacrifice to thank God for their harvest. They brought a sacrifice to express their adoration of God. They brought a sacrifice to, to, when they made vows of faithfulness to God. They brought a sacrifice for just about everything. But in the book of Hebrews, the Spirit has taught us that Jesus ended all of those sacrifices. He's completely fulfilled forever all the requirements of the shedding of blood on an altar. We have only to rest in him and trust that his once-for-all sacrifice of himself is enough for us forever. So how do we worship then? If there are no sacrificial offerings to bring, if there are no lambs or goats to be slaughtered, if there are no rituals of ceremonial cleansing to maintain, if there are no calendar, if there's no calendar of feast days to keep, if there's no holy city to, make we, to which we make repeated pilgrimages, what do we do? What does a life of discipleship look like? Well, here is the answer simply and clearly in verse 15. Through Jesus, we continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Jesus has made our worship acceptable, so we come through him. And we still come to worship. We give thanks, we adore him. But there's no ritual sacrifice to offer. There's only 
grateful praise. In other words, we're set free, not free from worship, but free to worship unfettered by cultic ritual. We're free to live lives of joyful gratitude, acclaiming his praise, singing of his glory, telling of his wonderful works, loving our Lord and knowing his pleasure. In short, living in gratitude. Now that's what the apostles taught and modeled for us. We tend to pray that God would give us what we want, but when we hear the apostles' instruction, they say that we ought to thank God for what he's given us. We tend to pray that God will deliver us from any suffering. But Peter and John, when they had been flogged and told never to preach again, they, they met with the people and thanked God that they were considered worthy to suffer. And Paul and Silas were found at midnight in a Philippian jail, singing praises and gratitude to God. The example and the teaching of the apostles was to live in gratitude. But lest we think worship is now just empty words, in addition to the sacrifice of praise, we're also called to bring the sacrifices of charity, works of mercy, and uh, giving to others. Once again, this is the inevitable fruit of our receiving God's grace. We, in turn, then show the same grace to others that we received. So the apostle John writes, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life for our brothers. That's gratitude moving us to mercy. James says it even more pointedly. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Show gratitude. Live as an outsider, purely set aside to God. You see, we're called to this life of gratitude, both of praising God for the greatness of his grace and showing that grace to others in his name. We don't bring sacrifices into the temple, but we live lives of self-sacrifice. In a very real thing, real way, everything extraneous is now stripped away in Christ. There's no ritual to be observed. No sacrifices, no holy days, no holy places, no priesthood. No, there's none of that anymore. There's only Christ living in us. And now that all the regulations and rituals have been fulfilled, we see that this was God's concern at the very core of the law from the beginning, that we love him and love our neighbor. Now, I think we've latched on to that part about not needing to bring in sacrifices. We do that part pretty well. We feel no obligation to show up at a temple every morning and every evening. In fact, we don't feel any obligation to show up every Sunday if we don't if we have something else going. We, we, we've learned about not being tied to the traditions and the ritual. But the part about becoming sacrifices ourselves so that our lips continually bring praise to God and our actions continually demonstrate grace Ah, that's a little bigger challenge, isn't it? Too often we have had the attitude, I fear, that because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, we've been set free from rigorous worship. Rather than seeing that because Jesus has fulfilled the law and joined us to himself, we have been set free to a whole life of heart and soul and mind and strength worship not just on Sunday, but all the time, God has called us to live a life driven 
by gratitude for his grace. We have too much can't see the forest for the trees Christianity. We have too much of someone fixating on some little doctrine that they love and, and losing track of the whole faith. Someone focusing on one little social issue and losing track of everything else and willing to destroy everybody because of their one little fixation. Because we're so obsessed with our one little thing, we lose sight of the beauty of the forest, which is the faith. But God has given us moments as we study the scriptures when we're able to zoom out and see the whole. And it's a beautiful sight. For me, this text is one of those moments when all the controversial things just fall into oblivion, allowing us to see that Christ, in joining us to himself, has made us outsiders of all the religious establishment and, 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 and cast us utterly upon him. That's all on him. And it set us free to live a life of gratitude, of praise and charity. This is the clear, sweet vision of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you grew up on it and love it. I didn't grow up on it, but I love it too. It starts in the first question by declaring that our only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to Jesus. And then the second question says, how will I come to know that comfort? And it outlines the big picture of the Christian life. Three things. First, I have to know the greatness of my sin. Read the law. You'll see you don't measure up. And then I have to know how Christ freed us from our sin and and its consequences. That's the message of the book of Hebrews, how he has fulfilled all of these things to set us free. And then thirdly, I have to know what gratitude I owe him for such redemption. And that's his word to us this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so easily, no matter what Christian circle we're part of, we're so easily inclined to get caught up in the rigors of procedure and ritual and tradition to build a bureaucracy and uh, then have it become an overbearing thing for the people of God until the simple saint who loves Jesus and wants to live for him is dealing with this massive opposition that doesn't quite see it that way. Thank you, Lord, that you've set us free from that. Not that we despise our church, not that we despise the wonderful traditions handed down to us, not that we despise any accountability, it's not that, Lord, but that you've set us free because at, our, at our, the heart of our being, we're outsiders with Jesus. May we not wince at that, but may it make us bold. May it make us say to you, Lord, you are our portion. You're all we need. We rest in you. We delight when others feel the same way and 
We have the sweet fellowship of a church family, but Lord, if all others turn against us, may we not cease to rest in Jesus. And then we thank you, Lord, that uh, you've called us simply to a life of gratitude. We're so inclined to set up new systems of rules of what we will do and not do and when we will be where and what we will wear and uh, what Bible translation we will use and how we will say things and we miss sight of the gratitude of praise and the gratitude of showing grace. So much so, Father, that we thank you when you have allowed us to come to the end of ourselves to see that we are no better than the worst of sinners and that all we have is your grace and that receiving the next breath today is just grace. You filled our hearts then with gratitude. May we not ever move away from that, but simply show that grace to others. We believe this is what you want us to be, Lord, and this is what you want us to be as a family, a church family, what you want all your church to be. But we admit that we stray far from it very easily. Keep us for yourself, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.